Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a great show. We've got Dr. Mark Borg, and he's a licensed clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst. He's been in private practice in New York City since 1998, originally from Southern California, but he moved to New York in 1997 to accept the position of director of psychology at the Fifth Avenue Counseling Center, a West Village community center that's been at the forefront of the community mental health scene since the early 1960s. He's got a real broad background in mental health and understands a lot. But the way that I look at Mark today, I see him, he's a relationship expert. Dr. Board, he's widely published in professional journals and magazines. He contributes a lot to different medical and psychologically driven books. He's written books. He's the co-author of the uh, books, Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Isolation to Self-Acceptance, Compassionate Empathy and Love, Ear Relationship, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy, Relationship Sanity, and his most recent book, Don't Be a Dick. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be back with you. Really, really glad to be here from East River, New York City. <laughs> Where it's just nice and cold today, isn't it? Woo! You, yes. You've been, I- out, you've been out checking out the weather on that skateboard, <laughs> I hear. Uh, yeah, yes, you, you did hear. I had an emergency. My daughter, my fourth grader had a, a, a she was presenting to her class today and she was a colonial blacksmith and <clears throat> we had the outfit and we had the hammer that we made out of a uh, paper towel uh, roll and um, and uh, I got her to school and we did the COVID testing checklist and we got her all masked up we got her in the door and realized that she didn't have her blacksmith outfit, so I ran home and, and, and grabbed the outfit and skateboarded in the 18-degree weather back to school. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I haven't done that in a while. Well, you know, I don't know. Is that crazy or is that confidence? <laughs> well, it's really funny. I mean, I know that we're here to talk about confidence. I know that. And and as we've spoken about confidence before, you know, I, I, I it's, it's just it's funny that I'm here uh, on the show with you, I don't think about confidence very much, you know, and, and you made the really, I think, astute suggestion that maybe when you're really living in confidence, you don't think about confidence, you know, it's like, it's one of those things, it's like one of, the, I tell my clients all the time, I'm like, look, here's what we really need to be grateful for, oxygen, right, oxygen, o- there's nothing more important on planet Earth to us human beings, but we'll never really think about it, right? True. But, Maybe confidence is like that. At least that's what I thought about since our last discussion about confidence. Well, you know, and and when you tell me I don't ever think about confidence, (laughs) I was like, wow, okay, that's the first time I've heard that in a while. Because a lot of the clients that I work with, anxiety, depression, and that certainly resonates with low self-esteem. So Mm -hmm. confidence is something that you know, it's a big deal in my world. Mm. And, you know, I look at it, you look at it as it, 
it comes from inside. And I look at it as, you know, there's a relationship between the brain and Mm -hmm, mm self-confidence. Because our, our subconscious minds, early on in life, they start absorbing messages and coming to conclusions. I mean, the, the subconscious takes that information in from our five senses, and we see it, we hear it, we smell it, and, and it records it like a tape recorder. But it doesn't necessarily go for accuracy. It just wants to record impressions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll talk with people and they'll, they'll think back to when they were a child and they really don't can't give me a specific memory of an event, but the subconscious mind has recorded it and the impression lives inside the mind. So the way that I look at confidence is that subconscious really has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, as a, as a psychoanalyst, um, I think a lot about the, the unconscious and I think about the influences that have actually created the unconscious because I think of the unconscious also as a place of psychological defense, meaning a place that protects one, protects me, protects you, us from uh, being overwhelmed by anxiety. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that we're coming at it from sort of different perspective. You know, I think of anxiety, I don't think of anxiety as necessarily pathological. I think of anxiety as ubiquitous and that we need uh, mechanisms, we need tools, we need defenses to navigate our way through anxieties effectively. And I certainly um, agree with you that, that confidence is, it can be a profound tool, a profound sense, a profound uh, either something that we uh, sort of inherit psychologically and in part of the ways in which we are born with and inherit the genetic material that becomes us as well as, and this is really the area that I focus on, which is the, the earliest of our relationships and the way that we are loved and cared for and then internalize that care and are able to take it with us into our, you know, our baby, basically overarching self of, of me. And, uh, and, and me is, you know, that, that, experience that self-experience that I, that I take into my everyday life and if I if I am imbued with love and care and have internalized it and can make use of it then I I suppose that that would be though I haven't really thought about it I admit uh, uh, my definition of confidence which seems to kind of connect uh, nicely with yours it does so I do agree with you that confidence starts early in life and if our basic, going back to Maslow's five basic, the hierarchy of needs, mm. if we feel well cared for, if we feel safe, if we feel secure as a baby and a young toddler, we do feel we're, we do feel more confident. Right. But what happens when that world gets rocked? Well, in, in my experience as a, as a psychoanalyst, and I, I spend my day, including today, uh, up until now, uh, partly at least, in and out of uh, session with people, because I, I, I see individuals and couples. And what I see is that two, two, if I just were to put it on a very, very broad spectrum, what I would see at either end of that spectrum are issues where we are either overly defended from being hurt, from being scared, from being anxious, or underdefended. And in either one of those cases, which I believe would have a lot to do with how we internalize uh, the care coming from our environment, environment generally meaning our, our family, our parents, our primary caretaker or caretakers, um, then what we see are uh, you know, places where we overly protect ourselves 
by such mechanisms, say, as uh, a, a powerful mechanism, uh, psychological defense called dissociation, or we underdefend ourselves and then we are exposed and we are highly anxious. On either side of that, the problem is we are limiting our, the, the, our own accessibility to experience. So we're kind of stuck in a rut. We're stuck overly protecting ourselves or we're stuck being so affected by the world, by the environment, by other people, that we are just like a raw nerve. And in either one of those places, we can't really experience confidence. And more importantly, I think, we can't really grow from experience. So we get, we get stuck in, in either one of these really, really uh, incredibly difficult places. So to you, Mark, I mean, there's we talk about self-confidence, we talk about self-esteem, we talk about self-worth. And sometimes I think they're all the same time, the same thing, but then sometimes I don't. Yeah, it's interesting because I also, you know, I'm, I'm such, I'm trained in a school of thinking called interpersonal psychoanalysis. It's the work of Harry Stack Sullivan. It's the work of Eric Fromm. It's the work of Clara Thompson, more contemporary people like Philip Bromberg and Stephen Mitchell. And, and in our thinking, we oftentimes imagine that there isn't just a self to be self-worth. There isn't just a self to be confident. There is a self-other. There is an experience of self, and then there is the internalized other who we are also in some kind of communication, if not direct, at least unconscious, or we are under the influence, we are being affected by the way in which we've internalized the care. And that care becomes, in my school of thinking, a, a foundation, a cornerstone, and then a foundation for how we think about ourselves. So if I'm treated, you know, at least if I, the majority of the treatment that I've experienced is one of, of conveying my worth, then it's likely I will feel some sense of worth no matter what the circumstances. And I think the same is true of confidence and esteem. I think that these things are gifts, largely, that we're receiving from the environment, and the environment, as I describe it, is is our largely our our very early interactions with the people who love us, who care for us. So obviously, there can be incredible trauma. There can be incredible traumatic experience as well that goes along with the building and internalization of these of this sense of self and other, which then is foundational to the building of. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say the maintenance of confidence. Well, you know, it's interesting because I consider you to be the relationship expert. And when I when I observe with my clients, when they get trapped in a bad relationship or when something sabotages a new relationship, it's usually they're not feeling confident in themselves. They're maybe they didn't get the job that they wanted or maybe Things aren't going the way that they have been. I mean, when, when life is great and everything is rolling really, really good, it's easy to have that confidence. But when we lose something that we think that we were going to obtain or that we deserved and we don't get it, I think that affects their, their own self-worth. And that's what I see. Take those good relationships, whether they're old or new, that's what takes them down. I think that's such an incredibly important observation because I also, and, and I would add to that, that if you think about where you are and I'm going into this relationship, and I'm feeling good. Let's say I've gone on several dates and people would like to date me. And I, you know, say, I still feel like I have a choice in the matter. Like maybe this person would like to go on another date, but I didn't feel like it was quite, quite the right fit. So I'm moving on. Um, 
And as a psychoanalyst, I, I tend to think that a lot of these relationship dynamics repeat over and over and over again in different opportunities. So I think one of the thing, one of the bridges that I might want to cross in what you just said are questions to the client or questions to the client about whether or not you know, you're going into this relationship. Yes, you have confidence, but you also have to leave room in that relationship for the other person to contribute to your confidence. In other words, there's the confidence that I possess going into the relationship. There's the confidence that you possess. We want to make sure that this confidence, let's put it in air quotes for a second, isn't just me whistling in the dark, isn't just me psychologically defending myself because getting to know you and allowing you to care for me is a great psychological risk. It's a great emotional risk. And to be vulnerable, I actually probably have to drop my sense of confidence just a little bit to allow you to matter as much as I do so that whatever confidence becomes between us, it's not something that I possess or you possess. It's actually become something that we co-create and share together. Right. It's, it's a weird conundrum. It's almost uh, paradoxical that I have to drop my confidence a little bit, allow myself to become legitimately insecure because I'm suddenly allowing you to matter, maybe even matter uh, as much as I do. And then we whatever becomes of confidence in the relationship is something we co-create, we co-develop and we co-maintain together. I think you bring up a really important point because, you know, self-confidence doesn't come from blowing kisses to yourself in the mirror. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? That correct. Yes, that's exactly right. It's not whistling in the dark. It's not, you know, it's not climbing to the top of the heap or hiding underneath it. But, you know, it's you can tell when a person feels confident in a relationship. I have a client and, you know, she came in the other day and she was talking about someone that she had just started to, to date. And she really wasn't analyzing. Does he like me? Does he not? She just assumed that he did. Mm. Yeah. And I think to me, I thought, wow, um, particularly based on this client's history, that's a very positive step. Yeah. Because... They're not so much worried about what's, it's not, it, it does take two, but it's not just what that other person thinks of you. You have to have that good feeling about yourself too. Yeah. Well, see, I think that that's such an interesting point too, because I think that, yes, it's great to go into a relationship with confidence. It's great to go in there feeling worthy and feeling like whatever value the other person offers is something that we can accept take in, metabolize, and make use of. And it starts with the confidence, knowing that I'm also offering in my confidence of myself, my esteem, my worth, my my very overarching sense of self, that I have something I'm offering you. Like your client is like, yes, it's wonderful that this person cares for me. It's wonderful that I'm having this opportunity to start a relationship. And it's wonderful that he's taking in this these wonderful qualities that I possess. I think that's really important. Now, my colleagues and I have written a book called Relationship Sanity. And we believe that once you get a certain ways into a relationship, other things start to happen, including with confidence, which is I want to be able to drop my guard a little bit, to not just think that and believe and feel like it's me giving you, aren't you so lucky to have all the wonderful things that I'm offering you. But I also have to drop my guard and allow the things that you're offering me to come in, to affect me, to be taken in and made use of 
Otherwise, you know, what happens is I start giving and giving and giving. I've got such great things to offer, don't I? So I'm giving and giving and giving and giving. And they don't even realize that that giving becomes a psychological defense against accepting what someone else has to offer. It's a very strange paradoxical dynamic that we've sort of discovered. And really, we're running with this. We're running with it. and We're begging people who have wonderful things to offer other people to stop giving for a while Drop your guard and let the other person give to you so that they know how valuable they are, too. See, we, we, I think we're going to run into a real wall of confidence if we're in a relationship and we're the only ones who get to be confident. You know, it's got to be co-created. It's got to be reciprocal. At some point, it has to be sort of thrown into the, you know, sort of taking the dice and throwing them, rolling them and to find out that we can co-create confidence together. I can make a really important point. Do you, what if somebody has a hard time doing that? What do you? What advice do you give them? My advice is this. In fact, in fact, I even go back before the the statement you just made. I said, let's just assume that we all have trouble doing this. Let's just take it as a given. No matter how confident we are, no matter how much esteem we have, let's assume that the more we allow someone else to matter, the more uh, we are going to be affected. I think particularly in what I think is the inverse of confidence, which is insecurity, right? So we're all going to be insecure. That's the polar absolute opposite of confidence. But that insecurity is not to be simply dismissed. That insecurity is to be listened to, attended, and cared for. I tell people, and I supervise um, psychological interns, and I'll tell them sometimes, they'll go, oh, Dr. Borg, oh, Dr. Borg, I'm so afraid, you know, I'm so afraid I'm having my first session with this patient, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, good. Oh, my God, I'm so glad to hear it. They're like, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to be pumping me up? Aren't you supposed to be filling me with confidence? I'm like, no, 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 no. The opposite. I'm supposed to allow you to know how important this is and that as soon as you stop feeling some insecurity with a task this important, you're in, you know you're in the wrong field. And I would say the same thing about love. You know, like if I'm going out on my third date with a woman that I'm totally crazy falling in love with, like the woman I wound up marrying, thank God, um, I'm going to be quaking in my boots, not because I'm not confident, but because this person is threatening to matter so much. And in the biggest possible sense, a person who matters, say like a person that you might start dating, who your heart is beating out of your chest, that person also has the potential to transform your life in ways you cannot possibly predict. So I think the ultimate, ironically... The ultimate in confidence is feeling the insecurity of something beginning to matter and saying, you know what, I'm jumping into the deep end of the pool with this person anyway. That's confidence. The confidence of knowing that I'm going to be insecure because this matters to me so much and I'm going to do it anyway. So what I hear you say is, is working past the fear. Yes. Because there is fear of yeah. saying, I'm just going to jump right head in first, you know. Yeah. And that's scary. It's so you've so got scary. You know, and people, everybody has fear, particularly after 2020. Come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's part of our DNA right now, that's and it true. all and it always has been. We sure. know that. But yeah. when you when people let that fear stand in the way, 
How do you help them move past that? Well, what I really try to do is I try to help them normalize it. I help them try to, to reframe and, re, and, and, and create a different understanding of what that fear is telling them. Because I think so often we misunderstand fear. We think fear is telling us, oh, you should turn away. You should turn back. It's too scary. It's too, too, it, it, it's too difficult. And I keep telling people, I encourage people, I encourage people, and I encourage people. And I tell them I'll hold their hand. I'll answer their phone calls in the middle of the night if they need me to, to tell them that your fear is telling you, often exactly the opposite of what you think it is. You think it's telling you to stop. I'm telling you it's telling you to go. I mean, the last thing that you'd ever want from a relationship is to have someone who doesn't challenge you, who doesn't scare you, who doesn't you know, basically challenge you to be the greatest version of yourself you could possibly be. It's the fear itself. It's walking through that fear that actually winds up manifesting as genuine confidence. I'm confident because I cared so much about you because you knocked me on my butt and I got back up and showed up on the third date and eventually asked you to marry me. <laughs> At least well, that's I mean, my experience. You're right, because I do want somebody that will challenge me yeah. and help and help me. Okay, is that is there another way to look at that, Lee? <laughs> Are there other things that you could consider? Mm. And I want that and I need that because usually there are other ways to look at something. That's right. And you might not get that from someone who doesn't challenge you, someone who doesn't freak you out, someone who doesn't make you say to yourself, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it. You know, when I fell, first fell in love with my wife, I wound up on my best friend's floor in his kitchen saying, I'm not going to make it. I just I, I was so blown away by this person. I couldn't believe it that I just like I, I, I needed a lot of hand holding. But the last thing. I would have experienced in the beginning of this relationship was confidence. How would I know that like allowing myself to feel so much for another human being would in the long run be what I could describe as confidence? It's so, as I said, it's so, it's so paradoxical. So it's interesting because, you know, I've heard people say, well, confidence comes from setting healthy boundaries. Mm. And, you know, I don't know that I agree with that. Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, well, you know, I, I, I can admit I am a fan of boundaries. I'm a fan of boundaries. I am I, too. Yeah, huge, right? So I can, I, so I could see, you know, taking that idea and allowing that to be something like, look, you know, I, 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 I think if I don't know what my boundaries are, say I need a certain type of treatment from another human being in order to feel valued, right? And, and if that's the case, then... I, I can take those boundaries into the relationship and actually use the boundaries to flourish and to allow me to have some parameters so that I'm not just like, say, using the kind of dramatic, <laughs> wonderful example of my relationship with my wife. I could say, like, look, if I just walked into that relationship, it's like, I don't care. I don't care if you show up for dates. I don't care if you uh, date other people. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you love me. I don't care if you call me back. I mean, obviously, though, that would be a setup. Right. So the boundaries and, do allow us to have some, you know, kind of greater, uh, you know, sort of context within which we are building something really valuable. Well, I do know that when you have weak boundaries, that you usually end up selling yourself out in a relationship yeah. or you put up with treatment that, you know, is not acceptable. So, you know, I see the beauty in boundaries. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's just sometimes those strong boundaries means that we prioritize our needs and our emotions 
over the other person's. And that's where the struggle comes in for me. See, I think you're right. And I, I would even go further with, just from my own perspective and say, if you're not careful that even something as healthy as a boundary can become so rigid and impermeable that it starts operating, back to my opening statement, it starts operating as a psychological defense. We don't want to be so psychologically defended that we don't allow experience to get in. We don't want to be so boundaried that we don't allow another person to matter to us. And so, you know, boundaries can wind up if just rigidly applied, they can wind up knocking us right out of the very vulnerability we need to be present in a relationship with another person, to build genuine confidence, not this false confidence of like, I'm better than you. That's not really confidence, you know? No, that's like people that are overconfident. And to me, that's because they're underconfident. Exactly. 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 I mean, I even think of things like narcissism. I mean, I think of that as a psychological defense against a deep, deep, deep insecurity. It doesn't look like that, obviously, when someone's beating their own chest. But the person who has to do that is a very, very insecure, scared and hurt person. Usually I know it's hard to be compassionate to the to the person with narcissistic defenses. But if anybody needs our love and care, if anybody needs to, to be safe in a relationship, it's someone who's operating narcissistically. <laughs> I know that's. I know it's hard it. to take. Uh, I know. I know. I know. When you see how they treat, because uh, I've worked in that community, and when you see how they treat the people that they truly care about, I know. I know it's brutal. It's just brutal, as you know, because you and I talked about my last book, the "Don't Be a Dick" book. You know, the dick is maybe another word for for a certain kind of narcissism. But I, in my book, I'm actually pleading for a kind of compassion for this part of ourselves. I'm not even like pointing a finger at somebody. Everybody thinks, oh, I want to buy that book for another person. I'm like, no, read it yourself. <laughs> you know, Any of us who think like there's a bunch of you know jerks and narcissists and whatever out there, first of all, let's look at our own insecurities. Let's look at how we treat other people that hurt us or offend us or, or, or make us feel insecure. And once we get a sense of our own tendency towards sort of questionable or bad behavior, we'll be a lot more likely to be kind and generous to the people who are offending us. So I remember when you, when I first met you and you told me why you wrote that book, (laughs) I I was, (laughs) Oh, please. Do we have to bring that up? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I was a big jerk to a work group. I was a big jerk. I was, Oh my, I was like, not only was I a big jerk, I was a big jerk in public and some of my neighbors actually saw me, me, the Dr. Borg on the, I mean, man, I went down in flames. And this book was sort of my amends. <laughs> well, it did a very good job. And I have to tell you, I giggle because I have that book on my book, my bookshelf. And you're right. Everybody wants to buy that book for somebody else. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, I need to get that for my husband. Or I need to get that for my partner or, you know, it's, it's always for somebody else. And that always makes me think of your story because I'm like, man, that's not why you wrote that book. Correct. But I do think the book brings out the point that, you know, part of, part of being confident is being able to be humble, to lower your vulnerability and, and that's where the confidence comes in. I can do this. Mm. I trust, you know, and when we come back from break, I want to talk about trust and how trust plays into confidence because I do think that there, it plays a huge role. Mm. And 
I think that when we grow up our early life and we don't have that foundation of trust, it does impact us all the way, you know, all the way through. Not to say that we can't step out of that because we can. We certainly can. But when we come back from break, I'd like to hear more about what you think about trust and confidence. Sounds great. Look forward to it. We'll be back after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. It's words you never heard. It's well known in medical practices that patients tend to lie about their health habits. They lie about how much they smoke, understate how much they drink or eat, and overstate how much they exercise. What's another word for those little white lies we like to tell in the examination room? Teradiddles. Doctors have a rule of thumb. Whatever the patient says they're drinking, smoking, or eating, multiply it by two. But it's hard to come clean about your habits when you know you're in for some jobation from the doctor. That's criticism we don't want to hear. If physicians want us to be honest with them, I suggest they try being a little less judgmental and use a little suaviloquence. That's soothing, encouraging talk. It's marching down. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Word. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back, and, and right before break, I think we touched on something, Mark, that's really important, and that is the role that trust plays with confidence. Mm. Well, I mean, when you think about it, you, you've been on my show with me before mm-hmm. and we had a good time. It went well. Did that, did that make it easier to say yes to the second invitation? Oh yeah. I mean, it, I, 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 uh, so I'm walking into my child's bedroom to do this interview and my wife is like, Hey, what are you up to? I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do this, you know, interview radio show. And she goes, Oh my God, you know, aren't you, aren't you nervous? Aren't you scared? I'm like, yes. And I using your word trust that it's going to go well because I had a, another show with this person. And before that show, she called me and before this show, she called me. And, you know, I have a sense that we're really on the same page and we're on the same team and we're working together to create this show to, you know, that, that, you know, the, the, the thing that I think about trust, and I, and I actually do think a lot about trust because in, in at least two of my, my books, I, I kind of turned this idea of trust a little bit on its head. 
because I have people that consistently come in to me, like, you know, with a partner, say, and they're like, I don't trust him. I don't trust her. I don't trust, you know, I trust, I don't trust him. He's going to lie to me. I don't trust her. She's going to cheat on me. And I go, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You do trust him. You do trust her. You trust that they're going to lie to you. You trust, because I, I believe we all trust each other. I believe we, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a concept in uh, behavioral probability statistics called regression to the mean. And what it means is if you take a thousand different examples of this particular behavior, you're going to find that in general, there is an average. There's an average expectable behavior for every person. And once you establish what that is, we call it the mean, the average, then you can basically, in quote, trust that a person is going to go back to the way that they operate. So if you know somebody well enough, you can very well trust that they're going to app operate, they're going to act like themselves. And that's, that's trust. That's what we can trust. I can, so I trust you are going to treat me with respect and dignity. You're going to ask me interesting questions. We're going to laugh a little bit on, on the show, and thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. If we're not laughing, then we're not doing a very. I'm not doing a very good job. That's, that's right. That's right. So I trust that you're going to take care of me on this show. I trust that you're going to provide a caring atmosphere for us to have a really interesting, compelling conversation. That's what I trust, and of course, that adds incredible confidence. But you know, trust is interesting because you're saying I trust you, Lee, but that trust is a two-way street. Mm. I mean. I put my effort in to make sure that I provide the behavior that shows you, mm. you know, I want you to trust me like this morning. Hey, if you got a second to talk, let me know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, I'm not real formal about it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we talked about the skateboarding uh, uh, incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think that people that trust themselves, they, want to treat other people in a way that develops that trust. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that, again, you know, back to the interpersonal psychoanalyst in me, I believe that trust is another thing that we co-create and we co-maintain together. You know, we co, co, co. We, you know, again, you know, like it didn't just happen because we had a radio show. I think it also happened because we both know Sandra Becker, who really hooked us up and, um, you know, really, she, I've had great experience with her. And then she said, oh, this the person, you're going to love her. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, if you say so, you know, <laughs> so you know what I mean? So you get like this wider context of trust. You get the trust as you see it starts building outward. And you, the next thing you know, not only are you um, trusting another person, I think to, to your incredibly important point today, you get to trust your own decision making. Because I come back on your show and indeed, you know, halfway through, I'm like, whoa. I'm being treated really well here, I think, and having a good time. I think I can trust that, and I can trust my own uh, judgment in, in a really positive, healthy sense judgment of, of this experience. Well, you bring up a really good point, and that's decision-making. Mm. Because, you know, when you're having to make those really difficult decisions, and not what am I going to wear today, or, you know, what kind of toothpaste am I going to buy? Eh, that's not that that big a deal but what what about should I take this job or should I marry this person those are decisions that you know when your confidence is off they those can be very difficult decisions yeah I think you're absolutely that's again you know I mean we're riffing on each other here but I think I mean if you think about the disasters 
that can happen when you don't trust your own decisions because then what you're doing is you're totally relying on a hostile environment somehow. You know, you're basically saying, like, I hope this is it's not you don't know that it's hostile, but it's obviously hostile if you have to turn to the environment for all the resources and you don't believe that you have any to offer, right? If I'm like, oh, this environment, i.e. other person, is going to save me, they're going to rescue me, they're going to protect me, they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to somehow swoop in and 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 basically in the in, in the ninth inning, you know, save the game for me. Like that's again, if you go into these circumstances with that sense that you don't have anything to offer, i.e. lack of confidence, then basically you're putting all of the power into the environment, into the other person, and if you put that power into the wrong person's hands, of course. They can wield that against you in ways that can be very destructive. I mean, I think we probably, as therapists, we see this person in our practice often. This person who thought they were turning to the environment with trust, but what they were really doing is they were recreating an old circumstance that actually knocked out their confidence and then knocked out their trust in their own ability to make good decisions. Well, you know, and I think sometimes if we put that power, that decision power on somebody else, that creates decision fatigue. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That can wear them out. Oh. Um, I mean, because I saw a study that says Americans make 70 conscious decisions a day. That's 70 distinct moments of thinking about your options and picking one and committing to it. And I have enough, hard enough time doing that for myself. If somebody's going to throw another 70 on me, that could wear me out. Yeah, I like that you're taking the other position, right? You're taking that position. And I guess, you know, of course, we, you know, when we are in the consulting room with our clients, you know, that there there are all kinds of opportunities to take that um, that uh, that request for being for being um, taking over and, and, and to, 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 to kindly and gently deflect, knowing that, you know, basically the person is not going to feel empowered if they give it to us on the one hand, which is what I was talking about, number two, that if they give it to us, we're going to be worn out, exhausted, and probably also set up, right? Because then we can be a scapegoat for whatever the outcome is of the, the decision if it didn't go very well. <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's taxing too. Well, yeah, and then who has to own it? That's right. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I find a lot of times people maybe they're afraid to own that decision. And if they can just slightly push that your way and thank you for all the information, but at the same time they're saying, thank you for the information. And based on your information, I made this decision. Yeah. 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 And then I take no response. On the one hand, I take no responsibility for it. And therefore I'm not really at risk, but on the other hand, like I also, because I didn't take that risk, I don't feel the sense of empowerment and confident, confidence and esteem that would come from making and then following through on a decision. I tell clients this riddle sometimes. I say, uh, three frogs on a log, one of them decides to jump, how many frogs are on the log? Uh, most of them... It, knee-jerk react and say three and then i say let me repeat the riddle three (laughs) frogs are on a log and one of them decides to jump how many frogs are on the log three because i did i say three two most of them say two like they thought that the decision and the action are the same thing but they're not 
right? Three frogs on a log, one of them decides to jump. There's still three frogs on the log because one of them only decided but hasn't made the jump yet. So the difference between decision and action is crucial. It's just absolutely crucial. And I find a lot of times if someone thinks I'm making a decision for them, they, they don't necessarily take the action. And if they do, they don't get the confidence that comes with it. Boy, that's a really good part point, you know, Mark, because you know, three frogs on a log, one decides to jump. Well, what if that decision, what if he's playing the what if game? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Forever. Forever. So that's oh. that's a really important point. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about that what if game. Yeah. Uh, that's my favorite game. So I, I, when I, when I was young, I don't know if I told you, but I used to be in a punk band. I, I was like a California surf punk. I was a surfer and, 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 a, and a punk rocker and all this kind of stuff when I, <laughs> in the 80s. And, uh, and my band was called All Night Rave, and we came up with this song, and the song had a lyric that went, I want you, I do, almost as much as I don't. And I cannot believe that 40 years later, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, my God, that's the song of psychoanalysis. It's not wanting or not wanting something with about equal force and intensity. It's wanting and not wanting with equal force and, and intensity. And that's the what if game. I am stuck in a conflict and I just can't act. I can't act. I think it should be I want it or I don't. And once I figure that out, then I'll act. But I'm telling every single solitary client I ever have had in my practice, it's not about I want it or I don't. It's I want it and I don't. And that is a far more compelling and exciting and thrilling possibility. Because when I get into a relationship and I want you and I don't, oh, man, we get to span the whole. I mean, we get we can live our lives together because we will constantly be living on both sides of a conflict which I think is as scary as that is, it's also lovely to know that I want you so much and I'm so threatened by my desire for you that I sometimes flip all the way to the other side and don't want you anymore because I'm so scared or I'm so nervous or I think it's going to break or because I've taken too much of a risk and then I get nervous about losing you, so then I want you again and this goes on. I have a couple right now in my practice. I adore them. They've been married for 61 years. And I'm 61. telling you, 61 years they just celebrated in January. And I'm telling you, that song, I Want You, I Do Almost As Much As I Don't, is just as much their song as it is mine. And I'm only 15 years into my relationship. That is amazing. Isn't it? That <laughs> truly is. I Want You, I Do Almost As Much As I Don't. And then it switches back and forth over and over and over again. And it's just a sliver of difference between wanting and not wanting. And rather than being a problem, I find that conflict is the most exciting, thrilling opportunity any of us face. I always tell my patients, I'm like, don't resolve the conflict, bring it with you. Bring the conflict with you into every situation you possibly can. Bring the conflict into your marriage, bring the conflict into your career. Because the fear that comes along with taking the kind of incredible risks we take when we're involved in some taking transformative action is so big that of course we're going to be conflicted. If we ever resolve the conflict, it just means like I'm not so thrilled with this thing anymore. Or, you know, if we resolve the conflict, have we settled? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think even, yeah, yeah. I would even go so far as to say that's the flip side of the same coin. Yes, absolutely. 
So what's your biggest challenge? I mean, you work with a lot of couples. Mm. But what is what is your biggest? I mean, somebody that's been married 61 years. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. But they face the same issues as somebody that's been married 15 years or yeah. 20. I mean, it, what is your biggest challenge working with in relationships? See, I think the biggest challenge is to try to con- not convince because convincing is absolutely the wrong word and no psychoanalyst would really. You know, it'd be like using the word should. We don't use that word. Um, but I'd say that the biggest challenge is helping people understand that though they think the big challenge of relationship is accepting their partner as he or she is. I don't think that's true. I think the big challenge of relationship is accepting ourselves as we are and how our partners are constantly reflecting all of this doubt and all of this problem with esteem. And, you know, it, it, it's not that we do or don't accept them. I mean, that's that's an issue, but that's secondary. I think the real challenge of relationship is our partner seeing us as we actually are reflecting this back to us over and over and over again all day long every day for 61 freaking years and then going do I really accept me do I accept me as I am that's the big challenge I think helping us all see that was actually the challenge of the dick book the dick book wasn't really about like whether or not I'm a dick or not the challenge of the dick book was I keep seeing this awful stuff in you and the real issue is I have to resolve my own issues come to terms and accept myself so I stopped acting like such a jerk. I'm not going to act like a jerk to other people if I'm okay with me. No, you're that's, right. That's the challenge. No, you're right. So, you know, you've written several books mm-hmm. and Relationship Sanity. Tell me a little bit about that book. That's the one that I mentioned earlier. That's the one, that's the simplest one, although it's the one that I think is hardest in some ways to swallow, which is Relationship Sanity is simple. It's a balance of giving and receiving. It's a balance of loving and being loved. It's We even came up with a tool that we call the 40-20-40, which is trying to understand that your contributions to your partner have to be somewhat equal. And so I, I find often in a relationship, there's a giver and there's a taker, right? There's a giver and there's a receiver. And I often say to the taker, knock it, I mean, to the giver, I say, knock it off, knock it off. Stop giving so much. You're giving like 80%. You're giving 90. You're giving 95%. You're thinking that you're so generous, but actually you're being selfish because you're not allowing your partner, the so-called taker, to give you the wonderful, valuable, exciting, thrilling stuff that they have to offer. We're only going to feel valuable to another human being when that person is taking in what we have to give. Oh, I so agree with that. Right? So that's what relationship sanity is. It's creating a balance. The giver of 95% has to back off. We're not, you're not allowed to give more than you know, 60. And the person who's taking all the time has to come forward. You're not allowed to give less than 40. And then there's a 20 in between the 40 and 60 that you get to sort of play around with. You get to have as your living, breathing reciprocity. That's, that is a great way to look at it because, you know, everybody wants to give. Mm. Everybody feels like they have something special to give. Yep. And if you don't ever get the opportunity to do that, that would make me feel like I was being held back. That's right. And, you, and, and, you, and eventually, though, the giver doesn't usually know this. So I don't like scathe the giver. I just say, come on back. Come on back. Let's give this other person an opportunity to, be value, to feel valuable, too. And eventually, you know, you realize that, like, to feel valuable to the person who matters most is absolutely, the, you know, that, that's, that's, 
that's what it's all about, right? That's, you know, to allow ourselves, talk about acceptance. You know, how are we going to accept ourselves if our partner's only giving to us and doesn't ever take what we have to give? We're going to eventually feel like we don't have good stuff to offer. Well, it's interesting because when you say acceptance, your book, Making Your Crazy Work For You, going Uh from isolation to self-acceptance. Yeah. Yep. So share a little bit from that uh, on well, that with us. Th- you're, you're you're jumping the gun a little bit. Actually, that book is coming out in June. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, okay. that's the third. That's the third in the irrelationship series, and uh, and and it's basically taking all this dynamic that you and I are talking about today when it comes to the giving and the taking and the you know sort of psychological defense and lowering them and letting other people matter. It's the first two books, uh, irrelationship and uh, relationship sanity, were all about what this looks like in a relationship. The making your crazy work for you is our uh, exploration of what this looks like in the individual, what this looks like internally. And we basically wrote this book because in the last five, six years since we wrote the original book, we've had tons and tons and tons of people going, okay, 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 we get it. You guys love relationships. You're talking about relationships. You're going to help people in relationships. But what does this relationship stuff look like in the individual? So we finally wrote the book. You know? Ah, okay. So yeah, I mean, so it's it's we're just now um, it just got accepted by the publisher our draft. So between now and maybe early May, we'll be doing the final revisions, and and we're actually just really excited about it. And by the way, the the three of us um, who wrote this book are the three of us who almost completely melted down uh, when we were and, and were the reason why I wrote the dick book. <laughs> so we so we have recovered. So that shows that those relationships can bounce right back. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, slowly. But I mean, we 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 have this um, idea in psychoanalysis called rupture and repair, and we believe that every time uh, a, a relationship ruptures, it's an opportunity for repair. So this group of the three of us have actually done a lot of rupturing and a lot of repairing, and and now we're we're yeah we're we're on the good foot. You know. So this sounds like a relationship you've been in for quite a while. Ten years. We've been working on this project for ten years. Yeah, that's that is a commitment. That truly is. <laughs> it is. It is. And making that work with you know, it seems like sometimes it's easier with two than three, because sometimes with three, there's odd man out. Yeah, oh, we've had a lot of that. We've had a lot. We had a lot of repairing around that particular rupture over these years. It's been at times it's been almost unbearable. Like that day in the restaurant where I stood up and told off my one of my partners that well it was about it was about the yeah it was about uh you know the really unstable dynamic of a trio well you know that that brings makes me think about an interesting thought because if there's a family with one child Mm. mom and dad and one child does that create the odd man out sometimes? Well, I mean, it's interesting you say that because in a funny way, that trio that you just mentioned is at the very center of the Freudian psychoanalytic model. It is what Freud conceptualized as the Oedipal conflict, right? The Oedipal conflict is all about what happens in a family when one little person is like, hey, what about me? You know, I mean, that's a very, very, very oversimplified um, explanation of an Oedipal conflict, but it is, but it does have something to do with feeling left out and what is a what happens in a psyche, what happens in a in a developing mind 
when you feel left out of something as important as the parental relationship. Of course, Freud would say the parental sexual relationship, but we've we've expanded the idea of Oedipus to, to be more inclusive of not just sex and sexuality, but also just the dynamics that we're talking about. You know, how do I how do I feel important to these other two incredibly important people? How do I find my place in this family? How do I find my place in this world? And hopefully the family, you know, and the parents in particular, you know, open up and make room for that person to also contribute. My very favorite psychoanalytic article ever was written by a guy named Harold Searles in the late 70s. And it was called The Patient as Therapist to His Analyst. And it was all about basically this idea that we're talking about today. It was all about how important it is for every single person's health to feel like she or he has something valuable to offer to the parents, to the therapist, to the husband, to the wife, to the child. It's so incredibly important for our psychological health for us to feel like we have good things to give. Healing, loving, caring, kind, generous things to offer to each other. So, you know, that made me think about needing because we all need things. We need to be loved. We need to be respected. We need to be wanted. Mm. But sometimes that that we don't want to be seen as that needy person. Yeah, I've I've also got a definition for the word needy. <laughs> Lay it on me. All right, here you go. Needy is a word that we use when we are not able to meet someone else's needs. You know, when we're overwhelmed by someone's needs, we call them needy. And so I always try to tell people in couples, I say, be very careful with that word because it's not just about the other person not having their needs met. It's about this system even if it's a two-person system, being unable to meet that person's perhaps legitimate needs. So I, I, I've always, like, I bristle at the word needy because I'm like, look, where else are you going to get your needs met? If this person's needs are overwhelming you, then let's reframe and try to figure out a way that you can both get your needs met. But let's not pathologize ever somebody for having needs because we all have needs and we all need to find ways to meet them, hopefully together in a romantic relationship. But so I find people have a hard time saying, I have needs. I, yeah. They're legitimate needs. Oh. They, they stumble on those words. Oh. oh, the person, one of the people in this 61 years relationship, I mean, that is, that is that person's goal. I am like, look, this other person in the relationship is not going to guess. And not only that, but you need to put them into bullet-sized, bite-sized, bullet-pointed, bite-sized pieces so that that other person can accept them. When you have a list of 50 needs that you offer and then say, oh, this person isn't meeting my needs, that's a setup. That's not fair. So I absolutely agree with you. And so those of us who have needs, as terrifying as it is to put them out there because they might be dashed, need to find ways to communicate those needs that other people might, 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 might actually be able to meet. Well, what? give us some tips on that. How do you communicate those? Okay, you first of all acknowledge what they are to yourself. And second, what I just said, you, you find a way to understand how you articulate and back it up. Because most of us don't realize that we're setting other people up because needs, because telling someone what our needs are is such a psychological risk. What we do is we don't really give people a chance. So we, you know, instead of saying here, you know, I need, uh, I, I need love, let's just say in the most general sense, what we say is I need love, I need affection. For instance, I was working with a couple last week and um, one of the people came in and said, oh, I have a list of, of six things that I need, and if this person can meet those needs, then I will, uh, I will retract the divorce, uh, you know, whatever. 
And I and so I'm okay. Go ahead. And the leads were unbelievable. They were so abstract and they were so esoteric and they were so incredibly detailed. I'm like, oh, you don't want to be married, you know. So what I'm saying here, here's here is a way. The, the most important advice I have on needs is break them down. Notice if the need that you think you have is in six parts. If it's in six part, you break that down to a bullet point. You make it bite size and you spoon feed it to your partner and give them a chance to respond. We don't realize it, but so often we're coming to our partner with an avalanche of need, maybe because we're so starved. And that's fine. Take a breath, take a pause, and spoon feed your partner. Give them a chance to actually meet this need because what that need, because what that will be, that will be you communicating to your partner that they actually have something valuable to give and you will be heading toward relationship sanity. Well, you know, and I think that takes a certain level of confidence to do. <laughs> Indeed. Don't you? Yes. I, perfect. Perfect. Yes. So, I mean, I think everything we do in a relationship comes back to some confidence. I agree. I, agree. I Mark, I thank you, you so much. Oh, thank for you. A blast. A blast. Sharing your time with me today and Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,